Roosevelt and Powell, well, Roosevelt is just sick, but they all stayed home together. Um, and so Roxanne, despite her injury uh, from surgery, um, not an injury, is doing kids programming today. So thank you very much for doing that. She's still gone and the kids are gone that I'm still talking about something that doesn't affect the rest of you. Uh, this Sunday is, is the, the first Sunday of Christmas. Now, now, often there are two Sundays in the Christmas season, not so this year. But for many people, it's hard to, to begin to switch. So while the world is done with all these songs and we're moving on and taking our Christmas trees down, this sort of traditional Christian calendar has a season of Advent where we await the birth of Jesus and also his second coming, and then has what we would call 12 days of Christmas, which is why we have the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. And so this Sunday is, is the Sunday of Christmas, which explains why we're singing all these songs, uh, songs that are Christmassy, songs that bring Christmas. And so that's where we're at as we sort of move into celebrating Christmas together, uh, of having it as our church. Now, one of the things that you might have noticed from the readings, though, is, boy, Jesus sure does grow up fast. Um, <laughs> We went from Monday night, him a baby in a manger, till today on Sunday he's 12 years old, being left at the temple by himself. He seems to seems to speed up on us. And that partially has to do with this period in between of, of Jesus' public ministry, which begins in all the Gospels, sort of with this baptism of him, um, and, and the end of sort of the, the nativity stories, which are only in two Gospels, don't give us really a lot of information. Now, many of you will remember one of these Sundays, uh, years back, um, we canceled the kids' programming, almost like we did today, and I was like, nobody's going to be there. I think Christmas was actually going, or this day was actually uh, Christmas Day, is uh, was the 31st, um, and I was like, I've never preached on the slaughter of the innocents before uh, with Herod, and I was like, so that seems like a good thing to do while canceling kids' church and, and it being the 31st, and it turned out that a lot of kids came and that the, the congregation was more full than you would think with Merry Christmas, here's the slaughter of the innocents. And so point being is there's not a lot of material between those two things. Is that In Mark's gospel, we see it in this way, is that in the beginning, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's a full-grown Jesus who walks onto the scene. Or in John's gospel, which gives us this beautiful sort of picture of the beginning of the incarnation, it actually doesn't even have sort of an activity scene talks about in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh and the word was among us and the word dwelt among us that light comes into the world all this beautiful imagery that inspires us to ponder christmas again ourselves but actually doesn't really have much to do with the infant jesus matthew's gospel slaughter herod and other things like we like we talked about so luke's gospel has one of the only pictures of jesus growing up one of the only pictures of Jesus in between infant phase and 30, hypothetically, which is where most people in the Gospels portray him starting his ministry. And so it's, it's this Sunday that we sort of put this story to see what is the, what's happening here. Why does Luke, the only one, preserve us this story of Jesus here? Now, one of the hard parts about this story always, and I, um, I've heard it preached on a couple times, and I felt that they were all bad sermons. Um, which is a cocky thing to say. I wasn't really a preacher at the time. Um, I was like, they just seem to be missing some of the point. And so I'd written one in my head that, that went sort of like, if you're going someplace and you feel like you've lost Jesus in your life, 
in the midst of your existential things. The place that you should go and look for him is back at the temple, is back at the church. That you should, you should return to the practices and places where Jesus resides so that you can find Jesus again. And as I've grown up, I thought, oh, that's also a bad sermon. Um, because it doesn't quite deal with the material at hand. It's a good message. I mean, it's not a bad message. Morally, if you feel like you're lost and you can't find Jesus for all the places you're grabbing in the world, maybe perhaps you should go back to the place where, where sort of heaven touches earth in, in, in the Old Testament, the, the temple, or you should go back to the church where, where this is the place where Jesus resides and you have these practices and things that speak and open up to Jesus. But as I've moved on, I was like, that sermon too would be a bad sermon because it doesn't capture sort of the essence of what's happening here. It just sort of makes a moral point about it. And I think the challenge is it is at least we've all been 12, right? And so one of the things that happens with this story, and it's probably wise that we don't have a lot of these stories, is that we can just read into what it's like to be 12. You can read into to Jesus' mother's reaction to him as if it were your parents, we all just sort of move into these spots, or what does it mean to ask questions um, and talk with adults and in, in a sphere that you're not normally in? We can all jump into a place where we're 12. And if you've been a parent, you can be like, how do you lose the, Emily, your kids are all here today. You made it all back from Chicago. Didn't lose two. Um, who else was traveling? I'm trying to think. Uh, Ringers, you have all your kids? Yes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. When I used to lead mission trips, I used to look in the back of the car and I'd be like counting heads and I'd be like, it doesn't matter, just keep going. They'll call somebody if, they, if they're not in the car. Uh, do you let people out, Nick, on the drive back up from Denver? And how do you make sure everybody's in there? Yeah, we have to do a, have to do a head count and uh, obviously I'll get a phone call. They call you? Yeah. yeah, so Nick is driving between the two. So like, how do you lose your kid? And then this is like, we've been walking with Luke for a while, the kid that angels came and told you was your kid, right? You think you'd be a little bit more particular about that. I mean, we all love our children, but if angels have come to me and said, Roosevelt is going to be very important, I, know, I can't say I love her more, but I'd certainly pay a little bit more attention when she was missing. Um, that, that Kelly's gone today. That's fine to admit. Uh, she's like, did you really mean that? Um, point being is, how do you lose your child? Um, and so the parent role can take on a big thing in this too. But, but if you think about this, where do they look for him with his relatives and with the other people? Is that they traveled in a large caravan, not, not a Dodge caravan, but like a large caravan of people. They would move. See, that joke was funny. I don't think it's funny at all. <laughs> I was amazed at what you find funny. I'm laughing up here and you guys aren't laughing at all. Um, uh, yeah, you laughed at the Dodge caravan? I thought you were with me on the more obscure jokes. Um, they travel in a large caravan of people, um, and they would travel, somebody, a boy Jesus' age, would travel with the men, possibly, and he would travel with the women, possibly, and he would travel with his siblings or family members as well, and so they're traveling and, and most likely walking back to where they came from, right? And so if you're in a big line, and if you've ever done like a, a hiking trip, even with 12 people, you spread out probably over what's about a half mile of terrain, if it's a multi-day trip, you're not always right together, right? So if you're walking with Joseph with the men, and he's talking to the men, and, and where's Jesus? Well, he's back with, with women or mom or head with the kids or something like that. You talk to Mary, where's Jesus? Well, he must be with his father or with some of his cousins or family. And so within this wide, strange uh, distance, there Jesus is there, right? Or, or your child is there. Um, you ever wonder that 
this might be a common occurrence in the ancient world when you travel like this, is that you would, you would get spread out and something like this might happen. And so when they find out after a day's journey that Jesus isn't there when they settle down for the night, they go backwards. And so first they check with their family and friends and their relatives, and then they go back to Jerusalem and search for him there, which is exactly the way it should have been handled. It's, it's sort of like it's not a shock that they lost Jesus. I mean, if you think about people, people have pulled away with their kids like in, in the, the baby thing on top of the car still um, or or uh, have left them at gas stations or other places in the modern world. And we only have like one or two. Imagine traveling with 40, 50, 100 people and trying to keep track, is everyone here? And so they end up sort of with this lost Jesus. And what happens is they go back to the temple and they find him there. What happens in that response is really important. But one of the things I wanted to, to, to think about is we talked about what happens in the other gospels with the Jesus around this age. And, and this is artwork from the 14th century of the, um, the infancy gospel of... Thomas? I looked it up before I got up here, and now I'm having a problem remembering it. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time in Gospels that aren't our four Gospels, which is why I'm having a hard time with it. On the right is a picture of Jesus, and this document, actually, this artwork is from the 14th century. Um, it actually dates to, like, the late 2nd century, maybe later than that, maybe earlier than that. But this is artwork of what Jesus might have been doing during this time. And it's not incidental that the church was fascinated about what happens in those 30 years. So on the right, he is um, one of his friends made uh, clay birds, and Jesus brought them to life. That's what Jesus did. On the other side, and this one is perhaps more tied to our passage today, Jesus is correcting the teacher of the law on what the letter says. And it looks like the teacher is about to hit him. Um, and so whereas in, the, in, John, in Luke's scene, we see him there, um, and they're amazed, and they're having a dialogue, and there's something going on. When they think about portraying this in the, in the 200s, 300s, Jesus is kind of a, a smart guy who's correcting people. This is what it must be like to be God. But throughout this gospel, we have he brings a life to life a dried fish. Um, he brings life to birds fashioned of clay. He curses a boy who then becomes a curse, uh, a corpse, and curses a boy who falls dead from his parents, and his parents become blind. Attempt to teach Jesus, which fails with Jesus doing the teaching. Uh, reverses this earlier act of, of a friend who fell from the roof. Heals a man who chopped his foot off with an axe. Um, carries water on cloth, produces a feast from a single grain, stretches a beam of wood to help his father finish constructing a bed. Um, these are all these miracles that they sort of inject into this early Jesus life. And it's, I think, wise that our Gospels didn't do this. One, because evidently they're not true if it took them this long to make them up. But two, they don't seem to be the character of the Jesus that we know. Now, my favorite instance of, of what a Jesus before he sort of appeared on the scene when he turned 30 is, is in the Passion of the Price where he invents a table to go with the chairs. And Mary's like, what are you doing? This makes no sense. And that's like, it's such a weird part of this very serious movie that he portrays Jesus making a chair to go with the table. It's a, uh, that one cracks me up. Anne Rice, who wrote the interview with a vampire, actually tried to write some historical novels about the early Jesus using various material, and um, other scholars have tried to construct what was it like for Jesus from the time that he was born to the time that he's 30 and his public ministry begins. And yet they all seem to fail. 
Um, part of it is, is, is that I think, and we struggle with this, is that we look at infant baby Jesus and there's a little bit within us that says, it must be hard for him to be like, look, I'm God incarnate and I need somebody to come and feed me and change my diaper. I mean, it's not just the humility of not like living in glory anymore. It's also like he's contingent upon other people, right? He's not just appearing on the scene. And, and I think we have this tendency to think his consciousness is like that. Here I am, come down from heaven. Look, there's a horse that I made. Um, when you really think about it, look, there's an ox. Uh, this is kind of gross. I can't wait till I grow up and begin this public ministry at 30. Um, that's sort of the way that we think of it. And yet what the church has always tried to hold for us is that while Jesus is a hun uh, fully divine and fully human, that in his lowering, he has a growth period to him which is where the passage ends today, is that Jesus grew in stature and grew in wisdom. Is that his consciousness of being fully divine isn't formed the way that sometimes we like to think it is, that he just appears on the scene and is like, this is me, I am God. Um, and even if you read the gospel slowly and notice what's happening here, uh, the claiming at the baptism, the scene at the transfiguration where it says, you are my son whom I love, you begin to see that for Jesus, the claiming of God to him also reinforces this divine identity, that it makes something in the moment. Now, the problem with this is we're always walking that thin line of, is Jesus just a human growing up? Or is there something divine about him? And we're always caught in that middle spot, which is why I think it's important that Luke has written this story for us, that this is what he's given us. And the first thing I want to say about this story is, is that, that what Don read for us, how it ties into Samuel's story, is that there's this phrase that history majors like, which is um, uh, history repeats itself. Um, and then there's a poet who took it in a phrase that I like it better, which is history doesn't repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes which I think helps. Because what happens in Luke's gospel is we think of Jesus as fulfilling prophecies, right? Jesus is one who fulfills prophecies. And Jesus is certainly one who fulfills prophecies. And the gospels don't waste much time telling us that. But Jesus is also one who fulfills roles. He fulfills roles in a way. And so if you think of the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew chapter 5, when he gets up there and preaches the masses, he fulfills a role like Moses. That's why that slaughter of the innocent story, too, is also important, is that the gospel writers are always trying to show that Jesus is like Elijah. Jesus is like Moses. Jesus is like Samuel. And yet they always want to portray him as better, too. So the widow at the widow at name in, in Luke's gospel is parallel to the one that happens in 1 Kings. And yet in 1 Kings, um, he has to sort of lay over him and sort of give him CPR, whereas Jesus speaks words that just bring him to life. And so Jesus doesn't just fulfill prophecies in the way that we think about it. For, for an ancient Israelite, he's also fulfilling and remaking roles. He's figuring um, in himself things that they know about their other holy people and yet doing it in a way that transforms them. So he says that he's greater than them. That he brings out something deeper. And so what happens with this Hannah story, which we've been talking about a little bit with John the Baptist and Elizabeth, is it's a similar story. Is that there's a barren woman who prays for a child and they're given one. And what happens with John is he sort of goes off into the wilderness and becomes this prophet. And what happens with uh, Samuel is his mom sort of gives him to the temple. And that's where he is to serve and to be. 
She's so amazed by it. And so what happens with Jesus when you think about it is Jesus is born of a virgin, which is this contrast with being barren, but he too is also given into a role in some ways. Why does he go back to the temple? as you go back to this place, is that, is that his role is sort of to be in this place. And, and when you think about temple, I mean, this is a huge place in all the Gospels. It's, it's where he overturns tables. It's where he's accused. It's where his trial takes place. It's the place he's at on the way in which he goes to the crucifixion. It's the place where the, the temple veil tears and the Holy of Holies is sort of, the Holy Spirit is set loose. The temple revolves around this place. And, and I think it is... Um, uh, Luke, he brings the, in the temptations, he brings them to the top of the temple. That this place where, where sort of God's presence is magnified is the place that Jesus is also drawn to. His life figures around this place. And so that's one of these things that happens with Samuel and it happens with Jesus. And so that Jesus is sort of this stronger Samuel in some ways. His mother doesn't leave him there, but he goes there of his own accord. And so they go back and they find him and, and they say to him, you know, why have you done this? And the word that, that Mary uses there is actually sort of anguish. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. That, that she's, you know, we always hesitate to read. We don't. We should always hesitate to, to read emotions into the Bible text where it's not clear what voice is being read. This became apparent to me that one time I listened to blessed, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, as if it were coming from um, an angry radio preacher, and then as if it were coming from a kind pastor. And you think, wow, it really changes. They're the exact same words, right? But it really changes the way you hear it. So in, when we read the Bible, it's important to keep the possibilities open. But with this, it's, it's very clear that there's anguish in the Greek for what they're looking for. Why have you done this to us? Why have you treated us this way? Why have you gone back in this place? And what's interesting here, and, and this is you can easily miss if you're reading the story, is these are the first words in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus speaks. At this moment, he hasn't spoken yet. And so there's got to be something important in these first words. And he says, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? They did not understand what he was saying to them. And this, this answer here claims something. And to be in my father's house. There's a way of translating the Greek here that says, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's work, right? And so what happens as he sits here with these scribes and these people is he is attempting to hear the scriptures from them as they sort of pull at the, at the, this is important, this is important. It's like the same questions Jesus gets in his adult life. What do you say about this? What do you say about that? Those are the same things that would be happening at the temple here. So when he's asked, you know, how do you inherit eternal life? Uh, which is the most important of the law? Those are discussions that are happening in first century Israel. And so Jesus at a very early age goes to the place of these discussions. At 12, he goes to the place where they're discerning what do these texts mean? How are we to hold these things, to practice these things? There's 600 and something commands in the Old Testament. Which one of these are important? Which one of these stories illuminates the way that the Messiah will come? There's lots of different options on, on which way the Messiah might appear. Um, there's lots of ways in which we might be freed from Roman oppression. There's three Jewish groups at the time. 
And so that Jesus goes to this place and enters into discussion at 12 is huge. He enters into this place to be about his father's work, about restoring something that's broken. And so he comes and sits there. And he says that this is the place in which he has to be. And, and the Greek here is, is sort of reformative. It's that this is work I must do. This is where I must be. He's got this identity within him, even at this age, that says he must be about this work. That this is where he must go. And so here he is at the temple, learning among these people and debating There's two observations left. I'm, I'm debating which order to put them in. The first is, is this. Is, is it says he grows in wisdom and stature, much like it says with Samuel. And I think that this is first important for us because Jesus grows, right? Jesus is one who grows up in these ways. And he grows in wisdom and he grows in stature. We're starting the Gospel of John next week, and we'll have John 1. Um, and we read Logos and we hear logic. Right In the beginning was the Logos, which is translated word, and we hear logic, right? In the first century, there's a chance that what that word means is wisdom. Because Jesus is this one who embodies Old Testament stories like this one we talked about, Samuel and Moses and Elijah. Because he's one who embodies uh, these. He also, in, in a way for us, becomes wisdom incarnate. Which isn't an observation that's totally obvious to us, what that might mean. But him growing in wisdom is this move of becoming wisdom incarnate in the world. And so if you were to read the book of Proverbs with all this sort of wisdom calling out, wisdom being there at the creation almost in Proverbs you have in Proverbs 8, that, that Jesus would come and be wisdom on the ground is something we often look over uh, because we prefer logic, right? Jesus is the logic of things. He's the logos of things. He's the word of things. And for some reason, it's not evident that this needs to be true. Those are static categories for us. But if Jesus comes as wisdom, he inhabits almost a more dynamic category. Wisdom has the sense of moving along the ground. It comes from practical realities. Wisdom isn't this thing that is removed from the world. If you read the book of Proverbs, it's very much grounded in the world. And so Jesus, as this divine embodiment, doesn't just bring divine knowledge, divine this. He brings, um, in, in, the, in a word, pronethis, which is the practical wisdom of living. Jesus is the one who embodies practical ways for living. And that's, that for us is a call for us in which we move into that spot. Because of what Christ has done, He's the way he opens up the space for us to become and move into this relationship with God. We, too, have the ability to practice as those who know what wisdom incarnate looks like through Jesus Christ. We link up that through, through looking at his life. We link up with that through prayer. We link up through that because God has sought us out. That those are the truths of wisdom being incarnate in the world. But the last observation is this, is that he lives in intimate relationship with this one he calls father. This one he calls parent. That Jesus, we're already here, and in Luke's last words from Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them for the day, not what they do, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Speak to this relationship as well. 
Jesus lives in this relationship as he's this human one, even at 12, as one who knows what this business is. As one who seeks this out, who wants who goes to this place. It's certainly different for us as Christians. We can't go back to the temple. We can't go back and do God's business in the, in the place where, where uh, ancient scribes are debating which one of the commandments are the import, most important. He's answered that question for us. But what we can do through our baptisms and through our lives is begin to move as though we are adopted into that place. And this is a message that I think takes up a large portion of the New Testament. And one of the things that I think as we think of the challenge of being Christians in the world today and being the church in the world is to reclaim that baptismal identity that not just that your sins are given, but that you've been adopted into God's family. That you're now in this place. That God is now parent to you. God is now father to you. It's not, it's not odd that his prayer begins with our father who is in heaven. And so the intensity of going back to my bad sermon on this is, hey, here's some way about you getting back to church. Not bad advice. But here's a better way. Here's a place about finding yourself, inhabiting the space of which you know the God, the creator of all things, in a way that Jesus knew him, a space he opens up for us, so that you can be about his work in the world. And as we go through John or Luke or Matthew or any of those, you begin to see what that work is. It's healing. It's restoration. It's forgiveness. It's making ways and truths known that have been long forgotten in a world that's more violent and more destructive and more bent on power and things. So Jesus, as he sits here discussing at age 12, is beginning to do something that he'll do for the rest of his life as the gospel unfolds. Next week, we'll start that in the gospel of John. But for this week, we have it here for us in Luke. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the mystery of God with us. Like Mary at this moment, she treasures all these things in her heart. This is a season for us for treasuring all these things in our hearts as well. Jesus is teaching, Jesus coming to earth, Jesus sitting at the temple. 